80s rock diva Pat Benatar fires her last shot. This is The Focus Group. They're all business, except when they're not. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Focus Group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. John T. Nash. We are here every Wednesday through our live stream at Facebook as well as our YouTube channel. Everything is branded Focus Group Radio. Don't confuse us with the woman that's at some crazy other thing doing some other Focus Group stuff, although she seems to be busy. The, uh, <laughs> you'll find all well, of gonna, our... You're, you're on that it. one. I forget her name. <laughs> you'll find all of our information at focusgroupradio.com. You'll also find our Tuesday podcast there, which comes out every Tuesday, 20 minutes, get in, get out. Three stories, John. And and don't, mess don't mess up my hair. Don't mess up my hair. And uh, you'll find our podcast there for downloading, as well as our program here, The Focus Group, with Tim and John. And our sponsors will be there as well. We want to thank Deep Discount, who's been with us now for quite some time. On The Focus Group, their logo's there. Click on it and start shopping away. They've got some great summer sales going on now. Great time to add to your library of media of all types. So, hey, Mr. Nash, I, have a, I had a question for you. I'd written, I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, but I, we, I forgot on to TFTM bring it up. On button? Yes. I forgot to bring it up, but over the weekend, I get some friends over, and we had, an argue, we had a disagreement or an argument. It was interesting. I think if we were on SiriusXM, this would probably have taken up the whole two hours with phone calls about how you load a dishwasher correctly. <laughs> and Richard and I got an argument about it because he is, he, he is very neat and particular about certain things. He's horrible with a dishwasher. So is our, our friend, apparently. Our friend Lisa is, too. And Mark and Carl, we've discussed this as well. Now, I learned from Martha Stewart. Well, I'm going to ask you first, and you tell me. How would you load knives and forks and spoons in the dishwasher? Okay, the dishwasher. Apparently, this would have generated a lot of calls if we were still on yeah. uh, Sirius, because everybody does it different. Bob's a little sloppy. Oh, there um, you go. He just puts things in willy-nilly. I load the top rack from the back to the front. I try to keep certain glasses and certain like teacups are in one row, glasses are another. If there's any large things like spatulas or spoons, they go in the middle. And on the bottom rack, it's always back to front as well, or depending on how you're stacking your plates and right. bowls and your stuff like that. But when it comes to the silverware bucket, um, knives, uh, forks and spoons, everything faces up, including knives. They, they face up unless it's a sharp steak knife and then that goes in a special part and it goes face down because you hear it blade down because you don't want to pick up a steak knife. So then when you're emptying the dishwasher, you know where, you know, you know the knives. But I don't right. separate out knives and forks and spoons, but they all go face up. They all go, they all point out. Yeah. Okay. So you and I are probably pretty close uh, to being alike because I will even put steak knives pointing up though too. You do that um, too? I do that because Martha Stewart says, that uh and and there's a debate on this because mark uh, pipkin mark our friend had sent me a an article about this out of some etiquette magazine as well and there's debate about these things so the whole reason for putting your fork the tines up and the yeah. and the butter knife and spoon is so that as the pro as the as the as the machine washes the items and it dries the water and everything goes down to the top and stays on the handle if there's any residual so you don't want to have the items in face down because then you've got whatever residual soap, whatever's left on the implement that's touching your food or your mouth. So I even with steak knives, I'm very careful. I put them at the back, but I even leave them sticking up because I want the stuff to fall down onto the handle. So of course, this was a big debate. 
and uh, oh no, everything should be down. And I, I gave my explanation. Carl kind of then I, I moved him over. He, he he agreed with me. You sold him. You sold Carl. <laughs> I sold Carl. Mark was Mark was a little bit uh, you know on the fence, and then he must have gone home and researched it and sent me this this article. And then I thought of you guys, and it's funny that Bob is you know Richard will just throw crap in there unorganized, mm-hmm. and it's so much easier to put it neatly because you can fit more in. Uh huh. Yep. I don't get it. Eh. I will the way you were the raised. Mic. My mother was real particular about the dishwasher. My mom oh, we, very neat about things. Same and here. And, yeah. and for some reason, until it was understood that dishwashers used far less water than if you hand washed dishes. I mean, oh, it was always the that. case. Yeah, they used a lot less. Really? Okay. So, but we had a rule like you had to pack that thing before yeah. they pushed the on button. When I was a kid, you had to have that dishwasher. Packed. Yeah, it needs to be filled. That's the other problem with Richard. He'll put ten things in there and then start it, and it just drives me crazy. On the steak knife thing, though, I got to say, from a safety point of view, I would just put the sharper things pointing down, and regardless of the, the drying thing, only because I, you don't want your hand hitting that. But what then if you again, live by yourself? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. No, <laughs> I'm just wondering by... because I, I, you know, I'd live by myself for so long, and I, but I always put the steak knives pointing up as well, but I put them toward the back so that I wouldn't hit them. And you know. But, right. you know, maybe maybe a compromise would be just the steak knives like you do go down, everything else goes up. Maybe the compromise <laughs> could be that. Yeah, we, uh, I, I, you know, whenever we've had a dishwasher, upstate, we've had the dishwasher break twice now in the past five years. And that's when I learned from you and Brian Roman at AdMark360 that these things are basically disposable yeah. nowadays. Oh, my God. He was through three and ten years because he yeah, crazy. thing ran like crazy. Yeah. The other, the um, other debate is the toilet paper roll, whether it goes over the top or under. You know, uh, you Bob, well, I grew up under, and because of Bob, it's now over. Yeah, I grew up over all the time. And I you found did. an old patent from 1880 that shows it over. So to me, that says. <laughs> and that's going to prove your point? Okay. Well, because Richard was under as well, and I, keep, I change it every time. I, keep, I go in all the rooms, I have to rechange it. He'll change it back, I change it the other way. It's a back and forth. It's like Lucy and, that, Lucy and Ricky with the window open, window closed, window open. Window open, window open. Yeah, th- classic, classic. So, um, you know, on the uh, TFGM button, which drops on Tuesdays, uh, we talked a little bit about summer ice cream, getting a Mr. Softie mm. during the summer. It prompted me to realize that we haven't made any vacation plans for the last, well, two or three years, right? We could. Do you guys have any vacation planned at all? No, and... Um... No, and uh, we also haven't had any guests um, this summer. We've had some over the over the spring, but no guests this summer. And uh, now there's appears to be people are a lot more people um, that were very careful. Uh, we found down here, particularly, are getting COVID. The yeah, they're strain. probably the, yeah they're probably getting the BI BA five or something. Yeah, and people that were very careful. I guess we've all become too lax. I haven't. I go, when I go to the grocery store here, I notice people again are wearing masks. I haven't. I guess I probably should uh, you start know, wearing a mask again. I've I've got a I've got a. All right. So here in the city, when I'm in Manhattan, if I go into a grocery store or any store, usually I put a mask on. That's not the case for everybody. And the other day, no. I was checking out at the grocery store, and the clerk had no mask on. Upstate at the big box stores and the grocery store, I, I counted like. 12 people in the grocery store the other day. Hard for me to imagine that a mask is going to, you know, it disperses, right? Right. I don't know. And of course, on the train, I, I always wear a mask as well. But um, Do they still require it? They do, but it's, 
lacks. Compliance is no longer up at 90%. It's 50-50. You'll see different people just not wearing it. They're not looking at you making eye contact. Right. Wow. But uh, on the vacation front, I said to Bob, we need to get away. We need to, go, we need to go somewhere or do something. And so for some reason, we thought of Palm Springs. And then recently, we were, I was speaking to our old friend, John McMullen, out in the, uh, the Springs. And he said, hey, if you want to come out here, you better look at November. Really? I'm Why like, is that? Well, well, because it's 110 degrees right now. <clears throat> well, yeah. And the whole so, world, right? You know, the whole world's 110. Yeah, so it, 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 by Halloween is when the temperatures start dropping back into the high 80s, maybe low 90s for a Palm Springs day. So uh, I said, Tip, Bob said to me, he goes, would, would, would Tim and Richard come out to, could, to the Springs if we, got a, if we got a really nice house? I said, I don't know. I, I'll have to ask him. So would you want, you want to come out to the Springs? I don't know. I would go. I, I don't know. Um, I would go. I'm not so sure Richard, for other reasons, would be able to go, but. I guess it would depend. I, what do you guys do out there? Because I used to like staying when you would go to the different um, guest houses, houses with the with the pools and the, the yeah. serve the breakfast. Do you do the do you do a shop and you cook your own meals sort of thing? And do you get a house with a pool? Yeah. So the the last time we were out there was many years ago. We were in Cat City. We rented a house with a pool. Uh, went to the Whole Foods, bought some stuff. We went out to dinner. Like we made a, a rule that we went out to dinner or lunch every day. One right. one meal a day was out. That's good. Yeah. And then the rest we did at home. Um, <laughs> the house was a little ratchet. The uh, the pool filter blew and caught on fire at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a hot tub, but that was that was whacked out. And the pool guy comes to fix everything, and we're like, "Hey, what about the uh, the water shortage out here?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been hearing about it for the last thirty years. I grew up out here. Everybody fills their pools, the golf courses, you know, the whole bit. <laughs> but um, Bob's obsessed with it, and I thought, well, okay. I could combine a trip to the Springs with also a visit to Los Angeles, which I haven't been to in a while, and I miss L.A., particularly that new museum that the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences opened, which I think looks really cool, and I'd love to check it out. So I think I might have mentioned this before, but, you know, I said car trips or, or taking care of our parents or visiting our folks doesn't count as a vacation in my book, but they seem to like, oh, there's a three-day weekend right there, right? <laughs> so I thought for sure Bob would want to go to, which I don't quite understand the allure many times, but I thought he might pick Vegas again. You know, um, we were going to ask you about this because the B-52s are doing one of their final concerts in Las Vegas, and that could be a good reason to visit that town. Did you see how much the tickets are? They were... Bob was like, they were like $200 a piece or something. Were they higher? Seven fifty. dollars <gasps> I looked at those. Bruce Springsteen is charging apparently $5,000. Per ticket. ticket? Yeah, people are not happy. I think when you have loyal fans like that and people and you're doing your farewell or something. Um, now, they all say it's not necessarily the acts that are doing it. It's these ticket brokers and these ticket people that are managing the tickets for these acts. But um, yeah, I've seen a lot of, I'm on a B-52 social group. And uh, lots of complaints. People are really aggravated with the cost of the tickets, um, particularly in some of the smaller cities. They're like, I, you know, four friends wanted to go. Are you going to spend $3,000? I didn't realize it was that much money. I, I mean, I would pay up to 200 maybe because it's, it's their last tour. What was the time when we went to, God, was it 10 years ago and we went to see Cher? What were they, 300 each? Well, we were given the tickets. But, but can we you, would you have paid 300 value. Yeah, they were expensive. Sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm wondering what Elton John's must have been. You know, he's on his what fifteenth farewell tour. The yellow he brick. Cher, he and Cher seem to be battling for the last farewell yeah, tour. Yeah, this past weekend they were out at the Meadowlands or something, and I, nobody commented on the cost of the ticket, but apparently it was a sold out show. God, he must have been sweating like a pig. How could you be sitting out there? Was he outside? It was. I I think it's an outdoor stadium. Yeah. I would think that'd be tough as a musician to be on this. Oh. Seat. The whole country's under a... Is there any Heat place advisory. in the country that's not uh, not hot? Maybe Alaska? Uh, there may be know. a couple places further north, but I... Yeah, everything... Well, today it's a little bit better because it's overcast. You're going to get rain soon. I'm going to get rain, so... There's John. John, you're good with the weather. You were, yeah. you were as good with that on a Sirius XM. Did you watch the final? Is the final... Is it all done? The Tour de France? Tour de France ended on Sunday. They did the triumphant, mostly processional ride from one of the outer towns in Paris into the... Right the center city i have to say that when you're watching them do their laps around the champs Elysees and the arc de triomphe and the louvre and the whole bit it's like it's a gorgeous city and boy the french love their cycling man <laughs> i got to the one of lance's i don't know which one it was his fifth one i think when he won i was on the champs Elysees, and uh you know they do go tv doesn't do it justice they're going and 30 miles an hour. They're going so fast you can't even really see them. Yeah. And then what I found most hilarious, which I don't think they show this on TV, they also have a sponsor parade. Uh, I, I saw part of this on a clip the other day. There's all these little floats and trucks that go by, right? Trucks, but they're going at like 40 miles an hour. We were laughing so hard. They're like these huge flatbed trucks with little tableaus on them or sponsors or whatever the different you know sponsor du jour was there. But moving. Like it was not like it was more like a presidential, you know, presidential motorcade getting from the White House to uh, the airport versus like a nice little that we would know as a parade. I mean, it was you hear the trucks. <laughs> so for the first time in a long time yesterday on the they, they did this little um, vignette on a family that sets themselves up on the route of the tour every year. They have a VW bus that they put on the top of it. They put a fixed bicycle <laughs> and one of their daughters sits up there and pedals and she's oh got pom-poms and they wait for the sponsor caravan to go by. <laughs> well, they show these trucks. Tim, you're not lying. No. They were flying yeah. by. And they consider themselves lucky if they catch something from one of these trucks because they're tossing crap. They're throwing oh stuff off the truck. It was the funniest thing. I thought either they just wanted to get it over with or this is what they consider a, a parade. But I thought, you know, parades would go a lot quicker. Maybe, you know what? Get Pride in New York should pay attention to this. <laughs> get that thing Move over, to, get that thing over an in an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> there they go. Here goes the center. <laughs> so. Anyway, what caught your eye this week, Mr. Nash? What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. Mine is a super simple one. I think I'll get a kick out of it. Um, Airbnb is listing a home, a mansion on Staten Island, which happened to be the Godfather mansion. Oh, it my was, gosh. Uh, it was figured prominently in the first two films, primarily first and second, at the beginning of the second. So uh, the headline reads, um, an Airbnb offer you can't refuse Godfather Mansion up for rent. A Staten Island mansion is up for rent. Uh, it was featured in the 1972 film. It's starting to book July 27. I think you could go further than that, but at $50 a night running from August 1st to the 31st, uh, it'll take a good many cannolis to cover the cost. That's not too bad, 50 I was going to say $50 a night for the whole house? 
Yeah. That's not bad. Good. Built in 1930. And here's, here's what they describe. Built in 1930, our charming but expansive 6,248 square foot home has undergone renovations and is completely modernized while still being recognizable from the exterior for its appearance in the Godfather 1972 film. Uh, the mansion is nestled in Staten Island's Todd Hill. T-O-T-T-O-D-T. Todd. Todd. <laughs> have you been to Staten Island, John? I have. Can you believe I've only driven over it on a bridge? <laughs> but you've never been there. You've lived in Manhattan, you know, decades. Oh, I lie. Wait a minute. I'm lying. We, we used to take friends who visited from college on the Staten Island Ferry for like a quarter, and we would get to the other side, walk off, and then walk back on. So I have stepped foot on it. But oh, okay. Well, but you haven't. I've always been fascinated by Staten Island. Kind of the forgotten borough. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, our composer, Jeff, uh, who did our intro music and our rejoin music he lived for a brief time on staten island during the lockdown and uh he said it was an experience he won't soon forget <laughs> <laughs> that's where big Ange was from i just remember big Ange. remember her big Ange is from there that's right so uh this this uh godfather house five guests can spend their time within the mansion's five bedrooms and seven baths take a dip in a large saltwater pool saltwater pools are kind of fun uh, they could have drinks in the basement pub. I bet it has one of those lights at the end of the bar, like the pub light. Or they can play a game in the game room. Uh, they can also work out in the gym. Wow. Uh, so there you go. The The uh, Godfather house is listed as something you can get on Airbnb. Wow. I, I would rent it. Um, I think it'd be Not very funny. Not that I'm funny. going to Staten Island. But I guess I would rent it. You and I rented... We, you and I stayed in the... Stayed in a... The former wife, what was it? The uh, the uh, Hugh well, Hefner's wife, first wife, mother's house, mother's. That's it. That's it. The <laughs> mother shit. of yeah. That's right. The mother of his last. We still, by the way, Bob found a piece of that stationery that we that, remember. There's that pad of paper that you could write notes on, and basically, <laughs> place was... it, it, the, the letters were interconnected in a way that it literally spelt the word boob. Or the... <laughs> I just remember, remember the place was full of air. Yes. <laughs> The bathroom. The, it was almost as if she just realized we were coming and just left. I think the beds were still warm. You, I mean, you. Yeah. I remember driving you to LAX because I stayed a week longer and I did my bike camp in uh, Solvang. Oh, that's and the right. Day I you, forgot about that. And the day you left, the um, the uh, the sinkerator, the incinerator thing broke, and there was like coffee grinds and water on the floor. And I, they're, they're like, "Just leave it. We'll fix it." Yeah. <laughs> Our travels. That was, that was one of those IGLTA conventions. Uh huh. Free yeah. convention that cost you ten thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had they that were... crazy that called me and harassed me because I filled out something. Remember that? Yes, you I know, do. Pretended they didn't know who it was. Typical. I'm probably advocating trips to uh, trips to Russia right now. But other than that, um, let's see. Mine. You heard it in my my opening today. The. Uh, the tease for the show. The, the headline is Pat Benatar won't sing Hit Me With Your Best Shot anymore. Really? Yeah. So she, um, everybody knows the 80s classic Hit Me With Your Best Shot. It was her best uh, single that she had. You know, she also did We Belong, Heartbreaker. She was ubiquitous in the 80s, right? In an MTV. I'd say so. Yeah. MTV goddess. Even more so than Madonna in many ways. But uh, so Hit Me With Your Best Shot had peaked at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was the first top 10 hit for her. And she decided that with all that's going on with gun violence in America, she said she just can't sing the song anymore, and she views it differently. She said, I'm just not going to sing it anymore. I'll still sing my other hits, 
But she now does more standards than classics. She's kind of changed her, her genre at the concerts. She said, while the song's meaning was about strength and resiliency, you have to draw the line somewhere and be aware of the lyrics. I can't say the words out loud with a smile on my face anymore. I just can't, which added to my decision. She said, it's my way of protesting all the, uh, the uh, rise in gun, the violence gun violence that we have in the country. So I thought that was interesting because there, this went through, and there was a couple of other stories you and I have talked about, and some we haven't. But uh, then I started looking at some other songs that people won't sing anymore, that people don't want sung. Um, probably most famously is Baby It's Cold Outside. Yeah, the Christmas one, which supposedly advocates date rape, right? Right. It was uh, recorded in 1949 for a film, Neptune's Daughter, won an Oscar for Best Original Song in the 50s. A lot of people equate it with date rape. Um, it's a, a back and forth, male, female talking, um, singing back and forth. It's been covered by many people, including Lady Gaga, Michael Buble, Tom Jones, etc. But um, And so a lot of radio stations have stopped playing it, but a lot of people have done some pushback and say, no, we're still going to perform the song or we're still going to, to play it. So while you might not hear it as much, some radio stations have decided at holiday time not to, not to do that song. The other one that um, in, in 2020, the Rolling Stones said they were going to stop performing Brown Sugar after 50 years. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so they have, it used to be, they would open up, I've, I've seen them in concert twice, and they would open up with Brown Sugar, it used to be the song they'd open up with, which I always laughed at because I thought, you're getting right to it. I mean, that's a hard-charging song. So they said Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, and the Rolling Stones announced they will no longer play the 1970s hit Brown Sugar on tour. They said the concern comes because of the 50-year-old song's reference to the horrors of slavery. Mm. So the last time they performed Brown Sugar was at the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami in 2019. When asked about the absence of the song, when a reporter asked Jagger about it, he says, oh, you picked up on that. He said, we were trying to figure out how to um, retire the song. He said, it's a popular song. People like it. This is Mick Jagger. And he said, we played it at every gig since 1970. Wow. But he said, I'm not sure I would ever write that song now. He said, it was very raw. raw. And uh, if you think of the first verse. Now, in typical Rolling Stones fashion, I could never really hear a lot of what he said. But the, uh, the, do, you, do you remember what the first verse of that song was, Brown Sugar? So taste. Uh, I don't. It's so. So it's you know. It's Gold Coast slave ship bound for cotton fields. So Gold's Gold Coast slave. I'm not a good singer. Sold in the market down in New Orleans. Wow. Scared old slaver knows he's doing right. Hear him whip the woman just around midnight. So obviously it's. uh, Wow. And you know, Tim, you bring up something interesting, like. I know the tune, but I don't yeah, know the lyrics. Yeah, I don't know the lyrics either. So yeah, it's Gold Coast Slave Ship for, uh, Bound for Cotton Fields, sold in a market down in New Orleans. Scarred old slaver knows what he's doing right. Doing all right. Hear him whip the woman just around midnight. That's what, what wow. you would hear. Okay. So he stopped that. And then the other one, although she's pushed back, she said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for singing it, and I'm going to keep singing it, and I'm going to continue to wear the full-blown party city Cherokee drag is Cher with Halfbreed. Half you and I both yeah. wondered how she's still singing that. She says, I'm singing it, and I'm not going to stop, and I'm going to continue wearing the outfits. So she, <laughs> she, she had said, <laughs> typical Cher, right? So she said, and she called the reporter a bitch for, uh, 
questioning that she sang the song. She says, I'm part Cherokee. And somebody said, you're only 1 16th. She said, it doesn't matter. And uh, you have to understand where songs are coming from. So her press agent or somebody put this out. They said, with each passing year, so many songs, albums, and artists are getting canceled and bleeped out of our collective histories. Well, no one in their right mind would think that Cher wasn't woke. I'm very curious as to how much music will be asked to unlearn or unlove over the coming years. We see it happening already, and while I understand the need for it at times with growing sensitivities, I just hope somewhere along the way we remind ourselves that we all evolve with time and that everything, including music, needs to be listened to and needs to be revered and put in the right context. You know, um, the share is an interesting example, and I, I hope I'm not offending or going out on a limb here, but didn't she write the song to bring attention to the fact that, After. you know, yeah, the whole thing, right? Yeah. Well, she, they said she, she was appropriate, you know, what is the uh, appropriation? Of, Cultural um, appropriation. Yeah. And, you know, in typical share fashion, you know, F you. Um, and then other people jumped on the bandwagon and, you know, she had a couple of songs, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, uh, Dark Lady. Yeah. Another one. And, um, but she, no, she said, I'm not, I'm not going to stop doing it. Now they do say, and we saw this when we saw her in Vegas. She doesn't sing the whole song, right? She comes, she came out, <laughs> yeah. she did like 90 seconds of it. But yeah. uh, she said it was part of her history, part of her, part of her, um, you know, evolving as an artist, and she was going to continue doing it. So that was uh, half breed. But anyway, Pat Benatar is not going to sing it, maybe with your best shot. Interesting. I, I, this was not what I was expecting when you sent over some of the pictures. This is really not what I was expecting, and what I find it fascinating. What did you expect? Um, I thought she was actually going to be doing covers of some of their hits, oh. Jagger and Cher. <laughs> so instead, it's about That's retiring. That's interesting. That's yeah, interesting. it was about retiring some songs that were because I wasn't I wasn't getting the connection between Jagger and Cher until you said, "Hey, these are other artists who are voluntarily changing their catalog or are not performing certain things." Yeah, no, I I thought the Rolling Stone one was uh, was interesting, fascinating. Too. Yeah, and when you read the lyrics, I'm like, "Is that what they've been singing?" <laughs> Well, because yeah, I hope I think, I'm not like I no, hope I'm not I'm, the I'm only as, one. The... I'm as bad as you. I guess if we looked at the, the the liner notes on the old albums, right, you would have seen the words. But when I've even heard it on the radio, it just sounds. I, I pick up just around midnight or whatever Same I here. think it is at Ditto. the end. Brown sugar, and I, and I could whistle the song, yeah. but I can't. You know, I you look so lyrics, good. Yeah. But yeah, no, the the thing about whipping and slave ships is probably yeah problematic. Yeah. So. All right, we're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, we have a business birthday. And we also have two shop talks for you this week. So uh, keep it on this station, which we know you are because it's time shifted. So we'll be right back. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Now, back to the focus group with Tim and John. Available pretty much everywhere. Welcome back to the focus group. In the old days, when we'd gone out to break, John, we probably would have played Brown Sugar. <laughs> we can't do that now. We don't have the licensing right now. No licensing right. So, hey, thanks for uh, rejoining us here on the focus group. As John mentioned, we're due our business birthday. And then later on in the show, we've got uh, two quick topics for shop talk, which we want to cover two business, two business things and one more of a personal business thing. So after our business birthday. So without further ado, Mr. Nash, 
Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the Focus Group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. So uh, born today, July 27th in 1927, was Alan Kent Breed. He died December 1999 at 72. Yes, you were going to say something? I was going to say, when you sent this over, I was, I'm blown away because you, you've hit a vein or a gold mine lately of people we have not covered in no. the last 13 or 14 years. And they have some pretty interesting contributions, right? Well, and you know what's interesting? I've, um, some of the sites, you, you used to always laugh about how we would find these business birthdays, which we've been doing for 14 years. Alchemy. Now. Yeah. And the, a lot of the sites I did use are defunct. They no longer exist. Seriously? They, they just, yeah, they've gone at it. They just stopped. You know, they don't, you go there in a server or the name has changed or they just, you know, they're dead, dead sites. And so I found this Canadian site that kind of chronicles, um, I think it's called On This Day or something, but there's a Canadian site that I've been using now that um, is just tweaked a little different. So it's it's providing us a whole new crop of people, which has been great and not the usual suspects. So um, that's where this, this uh, gentleman, Mr. Kent, came from. He was an American engineer and entrepreneur and was the pioneer of the airbag. The best. I mean, amazing, 1960s. right? Yep. He, uh, he received his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Northwestern University while he was working at an RCA in the late 40s. Interestingly, he earned his bachelor's uh, in just two years. And so they said, how did you do this mechanical engineering degree in two years? He had doubled his course load, and he would leave a tape recorder in one of the classrooms while attending lectures in the other. <laughs> and he was, they allowed him to do that, which I think is, is unbelievable. I don't know how you could, I guess he would go home and then listen, so it was kind of like he was taking two classes at a time. And uh, so he ended up finding, he, he uh, worked in an engineering, uh, for a couple of engineering firms, but in 1957 founded his own company, Waltham Engineering. And uh, which he later was called uh, Breed Technologies. And they worked in the field of security and armoring for the military. And so he had applied this expertise that he gained in controlled explosions and sensor technology in the development of the airbag. And he said the idea for the airbag had been patented in the early 50s by two Germans, uh, Walter Linderer and John Hetrick in the USA. But he said they weren't able to um, have practical use for it because the air and the compression that they used was just too slow. So by the time the car hit and the bag would, in, the bag would inflate, it was too slow. So with his uh, work with the military, he was able to have a much quicker, quicker um, filling of the airbag, which is they, they call it 25 milliseconds or something. Wow. Some outrageous, outrageous thing. So on the back of an envelope, he sketched this new airbag design. And uh, he was able to reduce the manufacturing cost by 30%. He built a prototype, and uh, it had some sort of sensor in it where at, when it would detect the collision and activate, the airbag would implode within 25 milliseconds. So yeah, that's pretty quick. So uh, he tried to sell this to the automakers. He got all kinds of resistance, um, but he persevered. He kept trying to fix it and tr or trying to improve upon it and talk about this as a life-saving feature. Meanwhile, Ralph Nader had talked about unsafe at any speed, and he was advocating seatbelt use. So he worked with Ralph Nader to try to lobby Congress to not only require seatbelts in all cars, but also airbags. So in 1966, Nader was successful. The U.S. Congress passed the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Act, which required all automakers to use seatbelts. They said the interesting thing is, 
that even though every car has seatbelts, only about 25% of the people ever use them. So again, Breed felt the airbag would be the perfect solution because you don't have to do anything. It's just going to work when you need it. So um, he finally, uh, they said in the 1980s, after he was lobbying and lobbying, he started to receive small orders from General Motors and Chrysler and Ford. And finally, in 1984, the U.S. Department of Transportation ruled that passive restraints would be made mandatory for all vehicles on a gradual basis. And so this resulted in the large-scale birth of the airbag industry. He was the only supplier in the world. So you can imagine how much money Monopoly, he made. accidental monopoly, right? Right. So on September 1st, 1998, the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act, who came up with that one? <laughs> A bureaucrat. Went into effect, which required all cars and light trucks sold in the U.S. to have airbags both un and for both front seats. So uh, he became a, a global leader with this airbag uh, technology and safety. Uh, as I said, he passed away uh, December uh, 13, 2072. He was forever remembered as an optimist. He, um, he, had a, he was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame as well as the Automotive Hall of Fame. And they said the phrase that was most often associated with him, he used to say, when something is basically good, you can suppress it for a while, but you can't kill it. <laughs> and that was his philosophy around the airbag, that he knew it was good, and he just persevered over well, 30 years until, until it was adopted as a safety feature in cars. I wonder if he was somehow paid royalties for further airbag development. You know, So the one that he developed is probably the one that came out of the steering wheel. But then you had side airbags. You had the glove compartment airbag, right? Have you... This is... I'm curious about this. Have you, since you were in the auto industry for so long and you got to test drive vehicles and you got to look at cars while they were being manufactured and you even got to sit in cabins before they were, you know, the interior of the car was finalized. Have you ever had an airbag simulation? I've watched them. You don't want it. Uh, it's like somebody, oh, taser me. Um, really? <laughs> now, our friend Doug and uh, another woman that I worked with we're driving a little too carelessly and flew out of the parking lot at Subaru and the front end of the car hit and blew off the airbag sensors. They both came in with burnt faces and uh, broken glasses and all white powder all over their, <laughs> their clothing. <laughs> but uh, not so, I mean, it'll save your life in an accident, but not something I think you just want to sit in front of and have it test you. Wow. It's right, pretty forceful. Because so, I, I, I've seen photos, I've seen video of the crash dummies, yeah. you know, being saved by the immediate explosion of air into the bag. I mean, not only did he invent the mechanism to fill it so quickly, but he had to ensure that the airbag wasn't going to explode right. with the with a forceful pressurization, right? Yeah. Well, then, you know, there's sensor. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. No, I shouldn't say problems. But there were all kind of unintended um, yeah. consequences with the airbags. There's a famous story where uh, Dodge Ram did all these snowplow packages in Montana for trucks, right, when the airbags came out. And uh, every time everybody was snowplowing and it would hit the snowbanks, the airbags would go off. <laughs> Which and would then, drive the drivers crazy, right? Yeah, well, of course, obviously. Because, you know, it costs money then to repair that. You've got to get a whole new, your mm -hmm. steering wheel module, whole thing needs to be replaced. And then, fam not, not famously, but could have been famously, Martina had this kind of crazy chihuahua named Killer. Killer D or something, Killer Dog. And she had a Subaru that, you know, she always said drove Subarus around. And she had, the dog was gnawing at the, uh, the front 
cushion of the the, the front of the what do you even call it? I'm, I'm losing my mind. The, the front dash, side? the dash, the da- yeah, the, the, it was chewing the 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 rubber and everything off the dash. And was on the driver's side, and she turns her car in. The thing was all chewed up. The whole car, front, the whole dash needed to be replaced. And the tech guy just looked at this and said, my, my, we almost had ourselves quite a problem here. He said, that dog was, you know, a millimeter away from hitting the sensor, and that dog would have been mushed against the seat. <laughs> so can you imagine her driving? The dog's gnawing on the, on the dash, and the airbag goes off and flies the dog into the... Okay, back of the car. this has taken us in a random direction, but I do have a question for you about dogs sure. and cars, since you're a dog owner. In the last five days, I've seen four instances of drivers who are acting extremely distracted. At first, I thought they were texting, but as we passed, we realized, no, there were dogs in the front seat, and one dog was climbing on the driver's lap to put its head out the window, and I'm thinking... In what world is this even remotely safe? I mean, I know that people think their pets are completely predictable sometimes, but I don't want a dog on my lap when I'm driving a car. I mean, have you ever done that? No, and Trixie used to be, um, actually Trixie tried once and I told her no and she never did it again all the time I boned her. Spike would still try every once in a while and I'd just pick him up. You know, he's little, so i just put him right back on the seat and strap him into his um, his little bed there. But a lot of people have these harnesses that they they have in the back seats for the dogs. You're not supposed to technically. Now I am wrong about this. I keep the dog in the front on the, on the bed strapped in. But if an airbag does go off if you were in an accident, it could you know be fatal because it, if the pressure um slammed the dog could break their neck or whatever. It's it's so the same with a person if, you have if you're a not passenger? wearing a seatbelt. Yeah, even if you have a passenger who's wearing a seatbelt and they're holding their dog in the lap on you the passenger that. side, that's still problematic. Well, it's going to slam into you. I mean, somebody okay. that's driving their car with a dog, because say they did hit something, the airbag goes off, it's going to slam the dog right into your chest. And then hurt you and the dog. Right. And if you don't have your seatbelt on, um, and the reason why there's headrests and everything is so you don't snap your neck, because you will throw your neck back. So um, it's important to have your head rest up. It's important your head rest is at the perfect height so it doesn't, so your head hits it, not your neck. Yeah, yeah. So that if you do get hit, your head hits it, not your neck, so it doesn't snap your neck. That's a little piece of info for folks, by the way. I, I, I usually ignore the headrest, but in our car, it's actually designed, it's, its lowest level is designed to hit that part of your head that would be the safest. So we had two, drivers, we had two drivers that were killed. That were uh, that did not have the headrest um, properly. The race car drivers for our rally team, you wouldn't know. The car was hardly damaged. They slid off the road. Um, they had hit something, and the car and they cracked their neck. They, they, both of them snapped their necks. Wow! And uh, it was because they had they didn't have the headrests on correctly. But yeah, you have to be careful. It, you know, Tim, I I I on a daily or weekly basis, I remind people that driving is a privilege. It's a job. When you're behind the wheel, your job is to pay complete attention to everyone else on the road to be better than they are and not to be texting and not to be doing a bunch of other stuff. Like I hear the, <laughs> the texting <laughs> one kills me. The, te- yeah. the texting one just, I get so aggravated and I will, I'm probably going to get shot one day because I'll go up to next to somebody that's weaving and, and causing a traffic jam and weaving around and you go up to them and it's usually some idiot with their face on the phone, texting away, not paying attention. I'll lay on the horn and I wave my finger at them. Yeah. Usually give me the finger back. And uh but it's dangerous. And you can in a split second traffic could be stopped, you could rear end somebody. Uh I think they I think they need to be more aggressive with uh 
Well, I'm trying to figure out how how to get people not to do this text and drive thing. There was a there was a movement for a while where the phone companies or the tech companies were asked if they could develop technology that would actually disable the phone while it was somehow in a car or moving. Right. I don't know how they would ever figure that out, but the national was it the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, did this incredible video on time perception, and they said you think it takes a second to look at your phone. But in actuality, the minute you disengage from this, the the front of the car and you look at your phone, it's like one and two and and you and they've shown people in simulators like reading a part of a text, looking up and the car is yeah. off to the left of the lane. You know, <laughs> no, it's or you know they used to blame the radio. Remember, people would not yep. pay attention, go down, look at the radio. So, but uh, yeah, so that's uh, happy birthday, Alan Breed. Good one. Our birthday today. So as we um, we mentioned earlier, we have two shop talks today, two quick ones. Um, I think the last one, again, is another one that would have probably made the phones ring for an hour. <laughs> but the, the, uh, the first one here, the first headline, John had seen this, and I, I had seen it as well, and I didn't read it, but I'm glad John had picked it because I was able to figure out what the issue was. But the, the headline is, Ford will reportedly slash a quarter of its workforce to fuel electric vehicle expansion. So Ford recently had split their company into two different organizations, one of them called, or two different entities, one of them called Ford Blue, which would cover their traditional and internal combustion engine business or cars as we know them today. And the other one would be focused on Model E or the electric vehicles that they have. And so they think this will streamline operations and uh, it's going to enable them to lay off approximately 8,000 salaried workers um between now and the end of the year and they think it will reduce costs or reduce um their operational costs by 2026 to what's somewhere around three billion which is which is crazy but um i just thought this was another one of these okay the i was trying to figure out how this was going to affect so many people because if you're still making cars i was trying to figure out what unless it's all the little widgets that go into a go into a um a gas-powered vehicle versus the electric cars. I'm wondering if they're cheaper to make electric cars. You know, I this was when you said it was a third of their workforce. I, I had to do the math at first, and I realized Ford employs around 31,000 workers in the United States, and um, and that's where the bulk of these cuts are expected to fall. So it would be a third if you like, you know, roughly it's a third. Um, it's probably management level. It's probably a bunch of you know, different levels of the company, but that's a lot of people getting laid off between now and, you know, the end of the year or maybe into the new year. And originally when Farley, who is the, uh, was it Jim Farley? Yep. Who's the CEO. He originally said that the internal combustion engine division, they call it ICE, um, that 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 entity would continue to generate the revenues necessary to have Ford Blue, the electric division, get it up and running, but now they're accelerating the electric transition. In fact, did you, I was boggled by this number that they're spending 50 billion on the shift to electric. I, I did, they yeah. didn't say how many years that was being spent over, but that's a lot of money, right? Yeah. Well, they they plan to, I guess by 2026 have a full, you know, the full complement of uh, electric vehicles, which a lot of companies are, are going toward. And uh, as you know, I love the idea of an electric car, but the infrastructure now, the Biden administration apparently has just okayed or they've gotten some sort of bill passed to um, have these charging stations, I think, every 50 miles. or there, There's going to be something 
that they're going to do across across the country. But whether you, I don't know if the similar to satellite radio, whether the chargers are all agnostic or not. Right? I think they have different types of plugs, um, which may be an issue along the way. But I I would love to have an electric car. Um, I think they're charging too much for them. And if it, you know if this is the case here, if they can get rid of eight thousand employees because they're switching over to electric now. You know, you don't have spark plugs, you don't have, you know, carburetors, all these other things, but you do have batteries. You do, uh, and you're going to have to have service. I mean, tires are still going to have to be rotated and uh, checked. Alignment will still be key, but, you know, it's turning more and more into a technician's job of how's the software doing, what's the battery life like. It would be tires and battery. I mean, what else would you need? But I think about the 8,000 people that are being you know, planned out to be like put out to pasture. What if their entire careers were spent dealing with, you know, and Tim could tell you that the auto industry is an incredible snapshot of supply chains and diversified manufacturing because all these parts come from different parts of the world and different parts of the country. But let's say you're the guy who was in charge of sourcing all the um, spark plugs plugs is a perfect example. Oh, we don't have any spark plugs anymore. I mean, you built your whole career on this. Your life revolved around the internal combustion engine, and suddenly, and if I could see how this leads to this weird kind of displacement feeling, like the future is here, and now I'm the past. <laughs> well, there's a big question about it, and then in the news with Volkswagen, for instance, about they're they're relaunching the Scout division. Um, they they had bought a truck company which gave them the name Scout, which many will remember from the '60s, the International Scout um, products. But they're going to be all electric, and they haven't decided if there's going to be uh, the big question with the Volkswagen dealerships are: Are we going to sell those, or are you going to set up a different different dealer body? Because um, you know, so many of these current automobile manufacturers, other than maybe te- other than Tesla, because it's, it's it's sold differently, they have all of these service garages and service techs, and rely on what they call the fixed operations business of which you had said earlier: oil changes. Mm-hmm you know, getting your car tuned up, um, carbon emissions. I wonder what the states are going to do now because states were making that as a, another tax, right? A hidden tax by having you go get your car uh, emissions checked every year yep. or every other year. So I wonder what the new tax will be on the battery cars. Oh, legislators will figure out a way to tax you. Do you know what it's going to probably be? That, that you're going to have to say, pay some kind of a surcharge for electricity drawn off the grid to charge your car. They might not be able to get it down to the voltage or the watts you've dr- sucked off, but they could say, you know, if you're driving, if that if a car needs to be recharged over, you know, something like that. There'll be a fee for de- battery disposal. Oh, that's going to be yeah. huge. And let's lo- talk about local fire departments who mm-hmm. are already raising the alarm bell about what happens when there's an accident with these yeah. vehicles. They sometimes have problems putting the fire out, right? Yeah, or the jaws of life can't be used because you get electrocuted. Yep. So, yeah. Anyway, happy, happy, right? So the uh, our last story here, John found it's as a quickie. well. It's a quickie, but it, and I have my. I think we both have our opinion on this. Obviously, it says uh, the headline: A whole debate about iPad tipping has popped off after this TikToker went on a rant about being asked to tip while picking up his to-go order. So there's a guy who um, had called a restaurant, ordered his food to go. Says he arrives there, goes to pick it up, um, goes to put down his credit card. The uh, person slides the credit card through and then whips, he said, whips the the iPad around and wants to know if he'd like to leave a tip. And he, that just set him off. He said, for, you know, he, he thought to himself, for what? 
And then they had the suggestion, you know, 20%, 27%, 30%. And uh, he said he's finding this more and more. And then a bunch of people fed upon it on TikTok talking about how, I love this one. Someone said they purchased a bottle of water at the fair. And when handling the bottle, they turned the iPad around and asked if I wanted to leave a tip. And the person's like, for handing me water? (laughs) But I've seen this, you know, we used to always go during our birthdays in studio, I would go to that night kitchen bakery and I would pick up a cake. Yeah. I'll take that cake. And they'd box it up and I would do the iPad and she'd whip it around for a tip. Did she make the cake? I don't know. I just think (laughs) there becomes a point where when do you stop this tipping nonsense? They're doing it at the giant now. You can round up your bill. Really? I don't know if you've seen that one. No. You know, 87 cents. Would you like to donate 87 cents to, you know, whatever? Like, no, I don't want to donate it. So I, um, uh, I love what you just said. You know, I don't know if she made the cake, <laughs> but I understand, you know, during the pandemic, everybody felt sorry. We, we were happy. Restaurants were open. People couldn't eat inside. It certainly affected the service business. And we would pick up Chinese food and order, and we would tip as if we ate inside. Yeah. But now there's an expectation that you're going to do that with takeout orders. We would mm-hmm. order pizza over the weekend and, um, it's the same sort of thing. I don't ever remember growing up when our parents would pick up a pizza. Nope. That you put a tip. No, no, no. And we have a uh, a bakery around the corner from our apartment called, I think it's Dutch Baby. And, um, you know, they don't have a huge bakery section, but it's a cafe bakery. And they have cupcakes and cookies and stuff. And now and then I'll go in and buy two cupcakes. Right. They're like three bucks a piece, right? So the last time I was in there, this exact thing happened. The thing spins around. And it, it's not even, I wasn't asked. I was presented with the the levels. and this. The picture we're showing here on the YouTube video says 15, 20, 25. The one I was looking oh, at yeah. was 20, 25, 27 or something yeah. like that. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I felt like if I don't push the button, I'm guilty. So I hit 20. It was another extra dollar or something. And uh, when I, the next time this happened, there was a woman behind me who saw me do this. And on my way out, she says, she goes, I don't know why you're bothering to do that. She said, you know, and she basically just, I, I watched her. She did not leave a tip. And I'm guessing that she figures the same thing you do, which is, well, prior to, you know, the pandemic, all we did was, you know, if we went to buy two cupcakes, $6, please, here's your six, yeah, right? There was I mean, no the tip. person behind the counter is getting paid something, right? Yeah, I blame Starbucks for all this tipping started. It started with the Starbucks, I believe. And all of a sudden, Starbucks, you know, started already overpaying for coffee and then, you know, go tip your barista. But, um, I, you know, the Magnolia Bakery in New York City, when we would yep. stop there and get stuff for the show, same sort of thing. We'd buy six cupcakes. We're, we're outrageous. I mean, what were they? They were $5, oh, like four or five or bucks something. a piece. Yeah. And then spin the thing around. Do you want to leave a tip? <laughs> it took you 30 seconds to throw those two vanilla and three lemon cupcakes in the box. Yeah. I mean, why is that tip, tip worthy? Well, Do you think the, it is? I, I think it's a guilt thing because that article, that's what this guy basically said in this, like, uh, I think it was a BuzzFeed article or something. Um, and it's almost like, they built it into the software, right? Right. It's built in. They could probably skip that. You, what do you want to bet that these companies that provide these tap and go systems, the owner of the place could say, you know, skip that tip part. But I had a friend explain to me that if you go to one of these places and you're treating it like a little coffee shop and you're going to sit there with your laptop for three, three hours, they feel compelled to tip because it's not like they're paying rent in an office or something. And they usually do the highest amount. So they'll like buy two cups of coffee and they're three, three hours there. 
and the tip helps that they feel the tip is a good thing. But I think for you, what you and I are talking about, a simple transaction, a purchase, I don't think it requires a tip. No, because if you're at the train station, you bought a bottle of water, you're, you're running it out in five seconds, you know, uh-huh. whatever it is. Or yeah. if you go to the grocery store, it's not like the, the checkout person at Giant or Acme or Trader Joe's or whatever has a tip jar there because they checked you out. No, CVS doesn't have a tip jar. No, but they might start. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. Anyway. <laughs> That's a quickie. And, you know, for, for you and me, this is a quick one, but you are right. If we were on air with live calling, we'd be getting calls from everybody about how they went to the DQ, yep. this happened, they did this. And those are always fun to hear because I love those other stories. Hey, we want to thank you for joining us here today on the Focus Group. Uh, focusgroupradio.com is the URL for our website. You'll find all the information you need about Tim and I, and you'll also learn about TFG Unbuttoned, our Tuesday podcast, which uh, drops on Tuesdays. That's why we call it the Tuesday podcast. That's about 20 minutes long with three stories. Uh, we sometimes go off the rails there a little bit, but not too much. Um, so, and a big thanks to our, our partner here on the Focus Group. That would be Deep Discount. You can get to them by going to our site, focusgroupradio.com, clicking on the Deep Discount logo and uh, shopping away. You know, I mentioned last week, one of the new releases was Drive My Car. I have to mention that again, if you, Criterion released it. So I know it's subtitled, but it is an Academy Award winner. You'll love it. So anyway, everybody, please stay safe. Tim's laughing and we will you're so accommodating. Yeah. You're so accommodating. (laughs) For the subtitle crowd. We're going to see you in the new week. Thank you. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.